Welcome to Navigating Marine Risks, a podcast series produced in partnership with AIG. Featuring panel discussions with leading marine industry experts, our series host is Dr. Stavros Karamparidis, head of the Maritime Transport Research Group at the University of Plymouth, UK. Joining Stavros to discuss the Northern Sea Route are Malta Humphert, Senior Fellow and Founder of the Arctic Institute, Dr. Emily Ferris, Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, Russia Research Fellow with an interest in port systems, and Dr. Konstantinos Tsetsos, Head of Foresight at Metis University of the Bundeswehr University Munich and Managing Director at Sikion Risk Consulting and MRQ Octopus. Welcome to Navigating Marine Risks, produced in partnership with AIT. I'm your host, Dr. Stavros Karaberidis. With the impact of the global pandemic and ongoing conflict in Ukraine having led to significant economic uncertainty, the maritime sector continues to experience ongoing tectonic changes. At the same time, the Northern Sea Route's sustainability is an increasingly important focal point of operations. In this episode, we will be discussing the impact of the NSR on global shipping and trade. Thank you for joining with me today, Malta, Emily, and Konstantinos, and welcome to all. To start, Malta, could you please provide a short historical overview and a description of what the NSR is and how it is functioning? Thank you so much, Stavos, for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, discussing this uh, very exciting topic. Uh, the Northern Sea Route is a shipping connection between Europe and Asia via the Arctic. Um, it goes from kind of northern Scandinavia, the Murmansk area in Russia, all the way over to the Bering Strait in, in the east. And um, it is uh, shorter than going through the traditional shipping route through the Mediterranean, the Suez Canal, the Indian Ocean, and then through the Strait of Malacca. Um, historically, Russia used uh, nuclear icebreakers back during the Cold War to resupply local installations, uh, military bases, and uh, population centers. And it was kind of one of the frontiers, uh, one of the you know borders during the Cold War. At the end of the Cold War, it got pretty quiet in the 1990s, early 2000s. There was not a lot of shipping um, occurring up there. Um, and, and back then, there was still a lot of ice. So it was really just the domain of heavy nuclear Russian icebreakers. It was pretty inaccessible during the winter month. And then over the last 10 or 15 years, we've seen commercial shipping activity beginning on the Northern Sea Route. The first commercial vessels that went along the Northern Sea Route were two German carriers um, in 2009. 2013 was the first big year where we saw a lot of transit shipping, um, different companies taking advantage of uh, shipping goods from east to west or vice versa, taking advantage of the uh, shorter distances. And then on the, over the last five years, traffic volume has really exploded, and that is due to Russia producing a lot of oil and natural gas in the liquefied form in, in the Arctic and bringing it from the Arctic to the markets in both Europe and Asia. And so um, if we want to put some numbers on that, historically, we saw about 3 million tons of cargo being transported back in the 1980s and into the 90s. Then it went down to just over a million tons. And now we're up to 35 million tons per year. And, um, you know, the Russian authorities say that these numbers will continue to increase rapidly up to 70, 80 million tons in the next couple of years, and then over 100, 150 million tons by 2030. As Russia opens more and more oil and gas production in the Arctic, we will see more shipping going from the Arctic to Europe and Asia. And then the question is also how much of this transit shipping are we going to see? So voyages that actually don't originate in the Russian Arctic, but go all the way from Europe to Asia and from Asia to to Europe, and uh, that's kind of more of a of an unknown. Um, so lots going on on the Russia's northern sea route. Thank you for providing that uh, deep overview of the overall uh, situation in the NSR. But several neighboring nations, like for example Norway, uh, they're using the NSR before the Russian sanctions. What is the current state about that? Yeah, we've definitely seen a, a shift. So a lot of Western companies and Western um, countries have backed away from using the Northern Sea Route, um, less due to sanctions. There's nothing technically uh, sanctioned or illegal about going on, onto the route, but um, I think it's just um, not the look that certain companies want to project anymore. So the vast majority of shipping on the Northern Sea Route 
is conducted by either Russian-owned vessels or Russian-flagged vessels or, um, you know, flag states like Panama, Liberia. There's still a few Western companies that that do ship. Uh, for example, the Dutch operator, um, they have been going through the Arctic, transporting um, some LNG, liquefied natural gas modules. Um, but by and large, it's dominated by Russian and then by some Chinese Indian companies. So um, Western companies have really backed away from going through the Arctic. So, Constantinos, several Western countries, as Malte has mentioned a minute ago, are not using the NSR. Do you think that's going to be a problem for the future by use of uh, the trade route? Hi, Stavros. Yes. Um, I mean, we see an impact. Even though they might not be directly sanctioned, um, Western companies self-sanction themselves in a certain way. Uh, and even though the trend is going up, let's say in the amount of volume and, and vessels that, that transits the, the area, mostly coming out of China towards uh, Western Europe. Uh, I mean, if we go right now to maritime traffic or Fleetmon, we see a relatively clear picture of, uh, of a high or greater reduction in comparison to, let's say, uh, the years before the conflict. Also, there is, uh, to, it has to be noted that there's a certain kind of vessels that are transiting, as Malta mentioned. Uh, usually it's uh, tankers or bulk carriers. Rarely you're going to see a, a container ship. The reason is relatively easy. Why do Western countries self-sanction themselves if they're not directly afraid of sanctions? Well, first of all, the, the options that you are, uh, have in the, in the area other than transit are relatively limited. You have uh, Momansk, you have Akhagensk. So uh, the northern uh, sea route is geared towards the western part uh, of Russia, where those uh, larger infrastructure and, and harbors exist. All other areas, northern of Siberia, Kamchatka, and so on and so forth, basically you just pass them because there are no options to stand. So that's one reason. The other one is because Multinational companies and maritime companies are probably the most multinational ones. Uh, they're responsible for globalization in a certain way, are afraid, of course, of all the regulatory, administrative, legal risks that are attached with uh, transits, even though they can claim innocent passage uh, because companies have become an extended tool of secondary sanctions. They might be afraid or deem the risk of being targeted by confiscation, inspectations, and so on and so forth, inspections and so on and so forth, uh, too high that the the expected margin that they're gonna get by, you know, saving six, seven, eight thousand kilometers uh, uh, by using the northern route is too small to explain or or to to allow them to take over that risk. So. In a nutshell, yes, in the near future, it is likely that we're going to see a continuation of the trend that Western companies will avoid this route uh, for political reasons, but not only. I think as we can dwell in later, also from an economic uh, point of view, the Northern Sea Route is not as beneficial, as profitable as people expect. Emily, do you think that regional ports could accommodate a potential traffic increase due to the NSA? Um, well, thanks very much for that question, actually. It's, um, I think as Constantinos actually um, was sort of outlining at the beginning, um, the short answer is currently not, because I think the problem is that Russia has very few ports in the top of its Arctic that are actually capable of processing an increase in traffic um, along the NSR. So they, they do exist, but it, it's, it's the lack of, say, um, emergency provisions. So if there's an incident at sea, um, at the moment, there, there are very few sort of provisions for, for ships to be able to divert anywhere along Russia, which obviously um, increases quite a lot of the danger there. But then there's a sort of <clears throat> longer term problem, which is the lack of investment in Russian port systems. Uh, and that's been a feature for many years, really. And uh, sanctions have been, I think, quite instrumental in slowing that process down. So initially you had countries like South Korea and China um, and even Japan, to some extent, who were interested before Russia invaded Ukraine in investing in Russian port systems. So trying to expand them and, and many of Russia's port systems that are that are very busy at the moment are already at uh, sort of maximum capacity. So the port at Vladivostok, for example, is, you know, it's very difficult to expand any further. Um, and um, I think if Russia really wanted to uh, support a significant boost of trade volumes to the extent that the Kremlin states that they want, this is a really long-term investment in infrastructure that hasn't really been supported by um, FDI at the moment. So some investors are nervous of not only the direct sanctions, but secondary sanctions, 
Um, so some of the impacts that, that companies might have reputationally and some of the sanctions that are obviously targeting Russian individuals and their families as well. Russia being uh, the country that it is, the business climate is uh, sometimes rather opaque, uh, especially for foreign investors. So it can be very difficult to know who you're dealing with. So that makes it really quite difficult, I think, for companies, especially those from Asia, that Russia is starting to look towards for as a sort of political and economic ally for investment. Then there's, of course, um, you know, the, the general sort of investments around ports altogether. So it's a very uh, potentially low yield, but high risk uh, opportunity. And I think a lot of the feasibility studies that uh, the Chinese and the South Koreans have done over the past few years have really showed that there might not necessarily be an increase in traffic uh, along the routes that they've outlined and that they can't really tell for sure that it's going to be profitable. And as a result, a lot of those companies have sort of uh, pulled out. So the sanctions are a serious problem, but it's also, I think, um, hand in hand with the, with the Russian business climate altogether. So the short answer really is that given a lot of time, given a lot of investment and given, I think, a sort of more serious determination perhaps by the Kremlin to make sure that these projects don't fall short of, of, of their implementation, potentially regional ports could, could sort of accommodate a bit more traffic. But at the moment, I don't really see that happening. Okay. And just to be clear, what you're saying is that you're not going to see Emily, any significant economic or cost savings for the shipping companies using the route? Um, no, I wouldn't say that, actually. I mean, I think that's that's probably a, a different question altogether, really. I mean, if you're, okay. if you're talking about sort of reduced journey times, that's certainly, I think, an attractive option. You know, as, as Malta already mentioned, I think, at the beginning about the, the reduced journey times, especially if you're, you're carrying cargo that's got, say, a shorter shelf life, but then there's, you know, there's there's other hazards along the NSR. It's not just a question uh, of journey times. It's also a question of feasibility and seasons and navigability and sort of difficult weather conditions that aren't necessarily within anybody's control. It's not so much a sort of a geopolitical problem, but, you know, if there's aside from the, from the ice, there's sort of, you know, fog and low visibility and winds, all of which can kind of impact on delivery times. So I think the port system is more of a sort of practical problem that the Russian authorities have an opportunity to control to some extent. Um, but what they can't control really um, is, is the weather along the NSR. And Costadinos, do you think that the fact that those restrictions, as Emily mentioned a minute ago, exist, make the NSR not so attractive? Well, I would agree for now. Uh, and I mean, we have to think about it in decades, uh, less than years, I, I believe. But yeah, I mean, as Emily said, discussed from an economic point of view, because we have to understand how, how does maritime commerce usually work. I mean, we have those old tankers and those bulk carriers that usually they're, they're loaded fully and then they go to the port of call. And this is where they sell the commodity to a client, right? Or, or the client ordered it. But if you look at the container business, usually a vessel would start in Shanghai, go to Malaysia, you know, um, exchange some containers, pick up new ones, go to Singapore, do the same thing, maybe 15, 20 times before they go to the transit route, right? Now, in the region, you don't have this luxury, if you wish, uh, of um, a significant number of ports or, or different countries where you can actually maximize uh, the efficiency of your travel route as a container vessel. So I believe it will be remained uh, uh, restrained to bulk carriers uh, in the foreseeable future. Another thing is that the shipping industry I mean, yes, it's ice-free most of the time, but still there are two caveats they have to take into consideration. One is they need a big investment into hardening their vessels for uh, because uh, ice-free doesn't mean that there is no ice, right? So uh, you need to double up your hulls. That's a lot of money. Given the small margin sometimes that persists in maritime industry, that's uh, a no-brainer for them to, do, so, uh, to, to refuse, especially since everyone is focusing on Suez Max class uh, right now. Uh, the second thing is that, let's say you want to transit and you have high-valuable cargo or a high-valuable vessel and there is ice, 
then you are obliged basically to charter um, a, a Russian icebreaker, meaning that you are dependent on a Russian icebreaker clearing the way for you during certain months of the year, which of course, again, limits your, your margins, <laughs> plus uh, puts you into, a, uh, let's say, negative business uh, situation where you're very dependent on Russia uh, uh, and that can be exploited both politically and economically. So for that reasons, in general, uh, yes, uh, right now, geopolitical restrictions, infrastructure restrictions, economic re restrictions, climatological restrictions, they make it less attractive than it's, uh, it, uh, it looks at first glance. But 2050 plus and beyond, then we're talking about a completely different uh, reality, potentially. Thank you very much, Costandinos. And I think the only part that you haven't touched on your concluding remarks, and I'm going back to Malte, is about the environment. Do you think, Malte, that by using the NSR, we can shipping companies can achieve environmental savings, which is a key question for the shipping sector at the moment? It's a good, uh, it's a good question. Um, so on one hand, obviously, there would be fewer CO2 emissions by shortening um, the distance. So um, that on, on first glimpse might look like if the distance is shorter, there will be fewer emissions. Um, but the, uh, the, 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 the big issue is that in the arc, um, there's no ban on heavy fuel oil. So most ships going through the Arctic are traveling with heavy fuel oil, which uh, then has uh, large emissions of black carbon, which uh, localized have a much more severe impact because there's ice-covered areas around and snow-covered areas, which usually have a really high albedo, meaning they reflect a lot of the incoming sunlight. And if suddenly you have um, dark particles, the soot particles coming out of the smokestacks of the of the ships, settling on the sea ice or, set, or settling on the on the snow on on adjacent um, land areas. Um, you actually lead. You actually have you know, increased increased warming in the Arctic, and so there have been several initiatives um, for the IMO to actually ban the uh, use of heavy fuel oil in in the Arctic. And um, there are initiatives in in place, but um, they you know they have long lead in periods. And so for now, actually going through the Arctic, even though you may have fewer CO two emissions um, by going through the Arctic uh, with heavy fuel oil, you have uh, you know a kind of a a greater regional local impact from from the black carbon emissions in the Arctic. And do you think, Malte, that NSR could be a competitor of uh, the Suez Canal? Because you mentioned all those problems that could probably come from the use of it, especially for the environment. Well, I would. I always say that it's it's more additive. So it it doesn't take away you know traffic from the Suez or the Panama Canal. Um, this is this is a new type of uh, shipping as it as the Arctic opens up as more and more ice melts throughout the year and you can extend the shipping season. You will have um, you will have companies um, that will begin to ship through the Arctic that previously may not have shipped at all through the Suez or the Panama Canal. So I think the vast majority of traffic in in the Arctic, especially if we get to those hundred million tons, two hundred million tons that the Russian authorities envisioned for the 2030s, most of that traffic would have not existed um, at all um, if the Arctic wouldn't uh, wouldn't be melting. So I don't think it's really a competitor to the to the Suez and the Panama Canal. Um, of course, the Panama Canal is, you know, is a very hot topic right now due to the water shortage um, in the Panama Canal. So, with climate change, uh, you know, one one never knows. Like climate change is kind of an accelerant and kind of a multiplier of of uh, of uh, of factors. And while it opens up the Arctic, it may make shipping through the Panama Canal more tricky. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to say n never say never. Who knows what happens in, in 15 or 20 or 30 years. But for the foreseeable future, I I don't think um, the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal have, have to worry that the Northern Sea Route is um, affecting their their cargo volume. Emily, as we're discussing about the Suez Canal, comes into my mind, you know, the big headlines for six days that we had nearly two years ago when the Ever Given was grounded. Do you think that the region is ready for an accident, you know, considering the extremely fragile Arctic ecosystem, and does it have an infrastructure to cope with an accident? Well, I think that's exactly the problem, isn't it? I think um, there's, there's a lack of infrastructure, but there's also a lack of search and rescue capabilities. And that was something that Russia had um, for many years actually cooperated quite closely with, with Arctic Council members like Norway and Finland on. But obviously, because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, those activities have been suspended and Russia is no longer technically um, apart. And that's actually, I think, increased 
the scope for incident. Um, so the Federal Security Services, the FSB, who also manage the Russian Coast Guard, were, I think, very interested in making sure that if there were things like uh, an incident at sea um, or an oil spill, that they would be able to collaborate um, with their counterparts in other countries. But part of the problem is that, that even if you increase the, the infrastructure, increase the number of port systems, you're talking about um, really huge stretches of land that are very far apart from one another. So hospitals are very far away. This is a very depopulated area, especially when you get to sort of uh, Siberia and the far east of, of Russia. Um, so usually most of these, these places, especially emergency systems, are only accessible by air. And Russia's regional airports actually are also not really fit for purpose. They've been largely uh, pretty underfunded over the past uh, few decades. There's quite often sort of, uh, you know, accidents as well um, with some of the sort of domestic airlines. And I think the broader problem really is that, uh, you know, when, especially when it comes to things like um, oil spills or environmental issues, um, they happen quite frequently in Russia, um, especially around sort of uh, various construction sites. And they're not really taken very seriously by the Kremlin. And their Ministry of Emergency Situations tends to be much more uh, reactive, I think, than, than proactive at trying to come up with solutions for preventing future incidents. So what tends to happen, especially, you know, in, in Siberian rivers, when chemical plants tend to leak, um, the default position is to sort of cover it up. Information tends to be uh, released in a bit of a piecemeal way uh, or through social media by, by local people. And actually, I think that the incident of uh, environmental accidents and, and chemical leaks and things like that actually happens quite frequently uh, in, in rural Russia. And I, I've not seen a particularly, although this is the subject, I think, of a lot of debate among the Russian academic community, um, even though I think there is a lot of interest in trying to take these things more seriously and have a different attitude to environmental security that isn't just about finding, say, technological solutions or financial solutions to environmental problems, but rather trying to address the core issues of climate change, which the Kremlin hasn't really shown much willingness to do, even though there is that conversation going on, I think, within the Russian academic community that hasn't seemed to have translated to, to the more senior levels of government. And so that, that mindset makes it really difficult if there is a problem along the NSR, if there is a, a leak uh, from an oil tanker, um, I don't think we can we can necessarily be sure that the Russian authorities would respond in a timely and a safe manner. That's a very interesting point, Emily. And Malte, just to continue that, uh, Russia has recently announced that it's planning to open the NSR for all year-round sailing by 2025. Do you think that is possible? And if yes, what would be the impacts of such action in the region? Yeah, we've heard we've heard you know those uh, those uh, explanations or those uh, comments for a couple of years now. Doesn't really matter if it happens. You know, twenty twenty four is also uh, a rumor, or if it's twenty twenty five or a couple of years after that. Eventually, they will have the capabilities and the capacity to escort some of those liquefied natural gas tankers, and then a couple of years down the road, oil tankers um, through through the eastern reaches of the northern of the northern sea route. Um, so j just to you know tell our listeners that when we talk about year-round shipping, shipping in the winter on the Northern Sea Route, this is still very challenging. It still requires nuclear icebreakers and vessels that are, you know, basically icebreakers themselves. Some of those um, ARC-7, so like a very high ice uh, class LNG tankers, they're very, very powerful, very, very capable vessels. So, um, this is not normal, you know, tankers or container ships going through the Arctic during winter. So this is very, uh, very specific infrastructure, very costly. And Russia is kind of being put um, on on the spot in this regard, too, because previously during the summer, when there's fewer ice, they would ship to the east to to export LNG or oil to China. And then during the winter month, when those sections of the Northern Sea Route would be too difficult, they would go to the west, they would go to Europe. But Europe, of course, is increasingly putting sanctions on Russian natural resources, so no more crude oil. And that's why this summer we've seen more crude oil flow to China uh, via via the Northern Sea Route. And eventually the EU will probably begin sanctioning Russian liquefied natural gas as well. And at that point, Russia will basically be forced to sail year round 
um, in an easterly direction because the European market, which is easier, even which is much easier to reach during uh, during the winter, will be will be off limits. And so you have that interesting nexus of how sanctions are forcing Russia to adjust its strategy. And they're also increasing the environmental risk. So this summer, we've seen crude oil being shipped through the Arctic on non-ice capable oil tankers. So we had several Suez Max oil tankers going through the Arctic, um, which Russia most likely would have not done if they would have been able to continue um, shipping oil to Europe. And so it's an interesting connection how strategy has to be adjusted on the part of Russia and how environmentally the sanctions are definitely not favorable because they force russia to take greater risks and um you know ship ship cargo in vessels that uh, are not really uh, suitable to go through the arctic great point malte and which is going to lead me to the next question for constantinos uh, and as malte said sanctions had recently been reported that you know are restricting russia to get access to ice class vessels and that's why they're using non-ice class vessels, as Malte has just mentioned, to increase the oil flows through the through the Arctic. Do you think that Russia's compromise safety and what impact that compromise could have in the overall Arctic region? Um, yeah, thank you for the question. It's a complex one, and it, it varies various answers. Um, are they compromising safety? Probably yes. I mean, as Emily and Malte mentioned, the search and rescue and environmental mitigation of capabilities of Russia in the Arctic are limited, right? So if something goes wrong, they can't even you know, rescue the crew, God forbid, stop the oil spill. Uh, that's one thing. I think what we see here is a very pragmatic approach to sanction circumvention. Uh, I believe you're all aware that uh, Russia is basically has found uh, a very good uh, solution for the sanctions problem from a, from a Russian perspective. They use extensive shadow fleets, and I assume they're going to do the same thing in the in the Arctic region, uh, so where you will have basically an unsanctioned vessel meeting a sanctioned vessel, then doing ship-to-ship transfer uh, of oil, for instance, and then uh, shipping the commodity back to Europe uh, at a at a steeper price. It's still Russian oil, <laughs> right? Uh, or, or, or still Russian national gas, uh, but it's uh, uh, natural gas, but it will be delivered by I don't know an unsanctioned flag state. So I believe we're gonna see the entire facet of uh, sanctions circumvention and that will include uh, a compromise of safety and maybe even uh, security um, i mean the impact in the arctic re region we have just have to think about uh, scenarios such as exxon valdez uh, would be catastrophic both for land as well as for for biodiversity at sea so yeah let's hope uh, nothing happens but the risks are definitely present since uh, uh, so non non icebreaker class uh, vessels with weaker hulls you don't actually need a lot <laughs> uh, to create a, a hull breach there. So um, the, the risk is here. And as traffic increases in the future, it will unfortunately remain, even with uh, hardened hulls. Thank you very much, Konstantinos. And Emily, do you think that the investment that Russia has announced of billions spent for building new icebreakers would be a solution to that? Uh, do you think that could keep the routes functioning all the year round? 365, as we say, in a safe manner? Well, I'd probably just um, add a couple of things to, to something that Konstantinos said, because, you know, Russia only has a few nuclear icebreakers um, along the NSR. I think it's only about three. But, but even if you do break the ice up, and, and, you know, as we've been talking about, that doesn't mean that the ice goes away completely, um, it melts much more quickly. So it's increasing the temperature along the NSR. It's leading to more ice melting. It's creating more environmental problems as it goes and, and sort of you know, raising the temperature, raising the sea levels. So it's not without its own environmental issues, I think, having um, an icebreaker program. Um, and I think it's all very well that Rosneft is, is maintaining that it's sort of uh, investing a huge amount. But Russia's shipyards and its shipbuilding capabilities have been really chronically underfunded um, since the Soviet period, really. And you've got China, which is also investing in its own icebreaker capabilities, which might start to emerge as a bit of a rival to that. And I think that's that's quite a lot of cause for concern for Russia. But what this basically means is a huge amount of pressure on shipyards like Krasnoyarskvizda um, in, in uh, the far east of Russia. And there's been a huge amount of uh, stories around corruption and embezzlement of funds um, from that shipyard in particular. So even though, you know, in Russia, a company like, like um, 
uh, Rosatom, sorry, I think I said Rosneft, um, a company like uh, Rosatom might announce that there will be this, this large investment. But I think the reality is that, that often a lot of these big mega projects don't often uh, come to pass, even if they are something that's very important for Russia politically. So I think the, the huge amount of pressure on, on Russia's shipbuilding capabilities mean that even with this investment, it probably won't be enough to keep you know, the route functional. Safety, I'm, I'm sure, is not really, I think, at the top of their, their concerns, frankly. And I think, unfortunately, this might, this might create a few more environmental problems than, than they realise. Constantinos, why do you think that Russia is heavily investing in such a challenging concept as the NSR? Because what we're hearing from Emily, it sounds very, very challenging. Well, um, it's not only Russia. But, uh, I mean, we have to put ourselves into the mind of an authoritarian regime that uh, is actually able, in contrast to democracies, to make plans for decades to come. We've seen the same thing with China, the Belt and Road Initiative, and now we're seeing basically the polar Silk Road in Russia uh, that is, I would say, co-financed between Russia and um, uh, China. I agree with Malta, as he mentioned earlier, that it is an additive uh, route, right? Uh, so Russia seeks a pragmatic access to global markets, shipping lanes in front of its uh, own porch. It wants to exploit the resources that are either in the region or in remote regions on land in Russia, uh, such as Siberia. That's why all those investment strategies that we hear, all those plans, they are actually augmented by the Chinese to create a, a second or third or fifth maritime uh, corridor. So there's uh, pipelines being built from Siberia going to those ports. There's uh, train stations, highways. If we look at it geostrategically, um, and maybe allow me to pick up the point earlier, will the NSR be a competitor to the Suez? Well, I, if I'm Russia and it's 2045 um, and I've, uh, you know, or 2050 and I've uh, extended my infrastructure and I've found a compromise with China because they probably will not uh, be in favor of this, it is relatively easy to use proxies or even directly to blockade the Suez Canal for a couple of weeks, right? Uh, we've seen it as an accident with the Ever Given. Uh, if you remember in the 70s, it happened due to political reasons, uh, uh, sanctions regimes. So let's say Europe doesn't want, or the West doesn't want to use <laughs> uh, uh, the NSR. You can create geopolitical conditions that make the, it necessary, and it would still be a, a straw to the Chinese that they can still, you know, continue to uh, with their trade aspirations towards um, Western Europe, at least by land and or sea, but uh, with a higher volume over the Arctic. So I see the Russians playing the long game here. Uh, they take climate change into effect. They take, you know, the exploitation of uh, future necessary um, or accessible resources in, in Siberia uh, under consideration. So their investment, given this assumptions, is warranted. Um, of course, if you think about you know 50 years ahead, so is that risky right now? Yeah, of course it is risky right now. But uh, uh, from a long-term perspective, it is actually a very uh, pragmatic and plausible approach if you are the Russian Federation that is still very fossil-based in its economy and has access to a vast number amount of various resources beyond just oil and gas uh, hidden uh, underneath your, uh, your territory. So from, from that perspective, every challenge or every risk might be there and acknowledged, but I believe in the long-term perspective evaporates due to the expected benefits that it may yield. Emily, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I think from, from the Russian perspective, from a sort of strategic planning perspective, um, and obviously a lot of their strategic planning documents go up to 2030 or 2035 and sometimes even beyond that. I think the NSR is sort of part of Russia's much broader foreign policy vision. And so this is kind of designed to link up Russia's maritime and its land corridors. And obviously this has all become much more pressing since, um, you know, the, the kind of effective sort of severing of relations with the West because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think there's also been some suggestions, and I'm not sure how much I buy this argument, that the Arctic is somewhat of a sort of a personal task for, for Vladimir Putin, that he sort of wants to project that kind of image of uh, Soviet and Russian explorers that are conquering nature. And that's, you know, perhaps part of why Russia's also made some forays into places like Antarctica um, in, in the last few years as well, and where sort of 
controlling both parts of the North and the South Pole kind of features into the way that Russia is reimagining the globe a little bit. But then obviously there's this really pressing economic need as a hydrocarbon producer for Russia to continue to find markets for its raw materials. So you can see Russia investing actually in lots of other different transport corridors as well, like the North-South Corridor with Iran that goes on to India um, via rail. You know, that's obviously a project that Russia has been investing in for more than 20 years. I mean, it's been under discussion for such a long time, but has been quite recently reinvigorated. So I think that the increased interest in the NSR, even though it's such, such a sort of uh, challenging environmental and, and practical issue, I think there are a lot of drivers as to why that might be particularly important for Russia at the moment. And you can certainly see that they're, they're investing a great deal, I think, in their infrastructure in lots of different directions, you know, in its inland waterway systems, in its routes via the Caspian Sea, um, to try to make up that, that really quite significant loss of trade with the West. Talking about short-term impacts, Malta, considering the fact that we have a lack of seafarers, do you think that a route that operates 365 days a year in an isolated and harsh environment, as you explained earlier on, would be difficult to attract seafarers needed for the operation? Well, I think 365-day operation is still, you know, several years away. And before we see a larger volume of, of vessels, that's probably several several decades away. And for now, this is largely Russian vessels. I mean, Russian nuclear icebreakers, um, you know, generally have have historically had, you know, Russian trained crews and, you know, Russia has maintained that kind of uh, capability compared to, for example, the U.S., where a lot of those skills um, have kind of uh, vanished over the last uh, 20 or 30 years as the U.S. is, you know, down to, for example, one single icebreaker. Um, there's not a lot of uh, seafarers anymore who who know how to operate and navigate in, in ice-infested uh, water. So for now, I don't really see a lack of seafarers or a lack of training to really be an issue since it is still small volume and a lot of that volume will be supplied and catered to by Russia itself, who has long maintained and, and made sure that they have those capabilities. And Kostadinos, uh, coming back to your point a minute ago of the long-term impact and how humanity probably is going to take the NSR, do you think that if NSR is not making sense, at least for now, to be benefit for the humanity in general, do you think that CPERS or the governments, for example, the G7 or any other organizations, could try to stop the NSR operations? Or is that a scenario that is realistic, considering the recent impact of sanctions in Russia and the BRICS competition or emerge, let's call it that way? I believe even if we wanted to, we couldn't. <laughs> so people have to be aware our power projection into the Arctic is uh, minuscule. Not even the U.S. has a, the capability right now to, let's say, put a brigade somewhere, right, on any of those islands. I mean, our naval capabilities are relatively good, yes. But again, uh, the question is, why would we operate in Russian littoral waters or um, a Russian exclusive economic zone without jurisdiction? Even, I mean, without a United Nations mandate, uh, you wouldn't be able to do that. With Russia sitting in the Security Council, uh, there will be no United Nations mandate. Other than that, I mean, you can do it outside the confines of international law. We have to understand there are limits, there are limited things we can do. I mean, there can be regulation towards ship owners or shipping companies by governments in the West to, you know, regulate or confine the use of the NSR. But as I pointed out earlier, if you use shadow fleets, even that evaporates into thin air the moment you try to do it. Geostrategically, I mean, I've uh, in several um, publications, I've asked for a European Arctic battle group, uh, just in case, you, you know, <laughs> because we don't have this capability. I'm asking for years for a NATO Arctic command uh, so that we can secure the high north if something happens. So right now, just strategically, we are concentrated on closing the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap and uh, limiting Russian, let's say, operation military ones there. You have innocent passage for commercial shipping. So other than from a legal point of view, there's little you can do. If there are sanctions, of course, then inspections uh, come into role. So we have some sort of constabulatory uh, maritime mission uh, in international waters, such you see as Libya, or for instance, where you could attempt to do that. But uh, most of the states in the West are not willing to escalate to that degree. So, um, uh, yes, in a <laughs> 10, 20, 30 years from now, I believe 
we're going to see a, the manifestation of potential sanction regimes to limit the ability of the Russians to have access to the global markets through the north. But again, there's only limited capabilities that we can put there on the table. I mean, you can have the US blocking the Bering Strait, Bering Sea, and uh, you can have some NATO US-led operation in the North Sea. Uh, but other than that, I mean, um, uh, I don't see that manifesting. So no, there will be no limitations. And even if there are limitations, unfortunately, the Russians and other actors have shown multiple times how they can circumvent them. And yes, we can maybe try to limit it and, and make a dent, but we will not be able to prohibit it in a certain way. And decades to come with climate change, uh, yes, NSR will become likely more lucrative also for, for the industry and economic pressures in a democratic society or in democratic societies like ours, uh, economic pressures will form interest groups that will influence and petition our decision makers also not to go too hard on you know potential venues for trade corridors. So yeah, uh, I don't see I don't see how we can right now, short of going the, into direct conflict against uh, Russia and maybe China, uh, I don't see how we can in any way prohibit the um, expansion of the traffic or the operations in the NSR in the next decades. Thank you very much, Konstantinos. And uh, Marta, do you think that we could see autonomous vessels anytime operating in the region? Because a lot of people are saying that autonomous vessels can help shipping to go forwards, reduce any kind of risks that uh, are existing or also tackling the issue of the seafarers. Or is, is a dream uh, that probably is not going to be happening anytime soon, considering the fact that we have limited satellite coverage, for example, in the region. Yeah, I think at most, I think new technology like artificial intelligence um, would probably be supplemental. There's, I think there's a large aspect of experience and there's a little bit of an art form too to navigating through ice covered waters, especially if you have to follow leads in, in the ice to kind of figure out where where the ice is weaker and how to how to avoid ridges or hummocks um, when you go through the ice. Um, so I don't I don't think fully autonomous vessels you know will be a thing in in the Arctic. I think there's um, you know large requirements of of experience and just the human the human factor. But, but there there is more and more technology being being employed. So Russia has been working with China to increase and, and improve satellite uh, coverage over the Northern Sea Route. Uh, I know that U.S. Defense contractor Raytheon a couple of years ago was working on like a predictive uh, ice uh, ice forecast map to create kind of what you know when we look at our iPhone for the weather forecast to have similar kind of aspects for the Northern Sea Route and that's that's perfectly normal as as you have more economic activity uh, in an area you obviously have more technology and more you know, more resources being thrown at them. Uh, it's similar kind of to the exploration of the American West, right? Initially, it was just um, individual trappers that, you know, went went out West or looking for gold that were coming on, on, on horses or by foot. And then you had some wagon columns and then you built the railroad. And so things just became, you know, more open, more reliable. Suddenly you had schedules and the trains would run on time. And that was a big, you know, a big change compared to 20 or 30 years earlier when it was wagon columns and they would take several months to go across. So um, I think we will see, you know, similar development in the Arctic as more and more ships go through the Northern Sea Road, as the ice decreases even further, um, you will have more reliability and you will probably have new technology kind of making that possible and also playing a more and more important role. But fully autonomous uh, vessels in the Arctic, um, you know, let's let's have them in the in the Mediterranean or in the in the Atlantic first. And, uh, you know, once we know they work there, then I'm sure eventually they're they'll trickle their way into into more challenging waters but i don't i don't think that's a, a discussion um that is you know pretty uh, pretty current at the moment and just to add on to uh, what you just said uh because you mentioned about the companies looking forward in the future and as esg it seems to be something that's currently being discussed in the shipping society and it seems to be the future going forward do you think that the ESG impact on companies involved with the NSR uh, and or companies that uh, operate in the corridor could have an impact? Or do you think ESG is something that is concerning companies operating there? 
Yeah, I think we're probably seeing a combination between, you know, ESG and environmental concerns and then also, of course, the uh, geopolitical political aspects. And we do have several of, of the world's largest container shipping companies who, uh, you know, who who backed away from fr from shipping along the Northern Sea Route already before Ukraine. We had uh, CMA CGM and we had MSC and Hapag Lloyds or some of the large companies, Maersk as well. Now, Maersk did, did one trial voyage, but then decided it was not not feasible. And for them, it's probably easy to back away from it too, because they don't see a lot of economic potential for container shipping through the Arctic. So it's a pretty low hanging fruit to step away from the Arctic. And then those operators that we are seeing in the Arctic are primarily, um, you know, from China, India, um, Panama flag vessels, Russian vessels, where ESG concerns are probably not as relevant, uh, at least for the moment. So uh, at the moment, I don't see, you know, ESG concerns or thoughts to be a big decision decision factors for companies to operate in, in the Arctic. And a final question I would like to ask to everybody. What do you think would be the future of the NSR and how geopolitics would impact its future operations? And if you don't mind, I would like to start with Emily. Yeah, thanks very much. I mean, I think probably from the Russian perspective, at least, I do wonder whether geopolitics is, is actually probably the biggest threat. I mean, I think it's probably more of a domestic issue. I think for the NSR to be a success, Russia needs to invest a lot more in its Far East um, and Northern Arctic populations. So really investing in building communities there, building the infrastructure that we've talked about, uh, investing in the ports, supporting the shipyards. But you really need a bit of a think, uh, of an overhaul of, of Kremlin strategic thinking about how you link up these settlements internally. And, you know, really for, for centuries, there's been a constant tussle between, you know, uh, uh, Moscow and the regions about uh, how to, I suppose, sort of subjugate them to Moscow's will. So, I think there is a broader political problem going on there. Obviously, the sanctions are a problem, but I think there's also a, a growing demographic problem that Russia is going to have to deal with. Um, and that is a result of uh, the war in Ukraine, the sort of brain drain um, of Russians that have left to mostly Central Asian countries. And the impact that's having is, is going to be, I think, uh, a much longer term issue in terms of having skilled laborers that you need to operate port systems, people who are able to construct vessels, uh, and even, frankly, cartography and, and mapping the region, which has been something that's also really uh, chronically quite, quite um, ignored in Russia really since the 50s. So because so many uh, of Russia's men of uh, employable age are engaged in Ukraine, I think there's going to be quite a, a long-term impact uh, in terms of how this is going to, uh, allow Russia to fulfill some of the bigger projects that it's engaged in, really. Malta? Absolutely. Um, I think Russia doesn't really have much of a choice to keep developing the Northern Sea Route. It's really, um, that's where future oil and gas resources are located. That's where revenue is going to come from. And so I think a lot of Arctic shipping will be, you know, will be very intricately and closely linked to Russian economic performance when it comes to oil and gas resources. And um, some of those, you know, 10, 15 year plans now have been scaled back a little bit. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw a new kind of more, uh, less less optimistic, a bit more reserved forecasts come, coming out. So sanctions are already having um, an impact of pushing back some of those additional liquefied natural gas project and oil projects. So geopolitics, geopolitics definitely have a big, a big impact. And if uh, you know demand for oil and gas decreases, then that will, you know, also push back Russian, you know, Russian development projects of of the Arctic. And on the other hand, you know, climate change is the big, uh, the big unknown. If it keeps accelerating, 10, 12 years ago, the common scientific wisdom was that the Arctic was warming at twice the rate as the rest of the planet, and then it went to three times. Uh, as quickly warming in the Arctic as the rest of the planet. And then just two, three years ago, we went to four times um, the warming in the Arctic as the rest of the planet. And so if that trend keeps keeps going and, and the ice does keep melting, then um, of course, shipping in the Arctic could also develop more independently from Russian oil and gas resource development. So um, lots of unknowns, but it is definitely happening very quickly. And that is always a big challenge for policymakers when 
changes happen quickly and it requires new norms and new regulations to make sure it uh, it occurs safely. So um, even if Russian oil and gas developments are slowed down a little bit in the Arctic, um, there will still be you know massive amounts of shipping in the Arctic compared to just 10 or 15 years ago. Thank you very much. And Konstantinos? Yeah, I, uh, I agree with Emily in Malta. Let me add maybe a bold claim. Uh, as Malta said, the Arctic alone contains 13% of the world's oil and 30% of its natural gas. So long-term, if it becomes a viable economic corridor, uh, it becomes a Chinese and Russian polar silk road, ultimately it will also become transformed into a region of hegemonic competition uh, long-term between the collective West and China, not only over control of the territory, because there are uh, some territorial conflicts and economic zone disputes in the region already claimed and non-recognized uh, exclusive economic zones, not delimited maritime borders and so on and so forth, uh, even some minor territorial claims. So what I'm seeing is, uh, and we're going to see the same thing in the Arctic as we see worldwide. So the use of the freedom of sea and the freedom of navigation as leverage to assert their political interests uh, by actors. And we are not there yet in the Arctic, but long-term, unfortunately, given the resources and the geopolitical importance of the region in the future, uh, it is likely that we're going to witness that there as well. Thank you very much, Konstantinos. It has been great to discuss such a hot topic as the challenges and opportunities related to the NSR and maritime transport and supply chain with you, Malta, Emily, and Konstantinos. And many thanks for your time. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you very much for a great discussion. Thanks, everybody. Thanks to you for listening to Navigating Marine Risk, produced in partnership with AIG. I hope we have provided some valuable insights into a crucial issue for shipping, a sector that is responsible for the transportation of 80% of anything that we consume daily. I'll be back with the next in the series soon, but for now, from me, Stavros Karaberidis, goodbye. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast series are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of American International Group Incorporated or its subsidiaries or affiliates, AIG. Any content provided by our speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. AIG makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, or validity of any information provided during this podcast series and will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its use.